I remember feeling a little nervous, but also excited. Can you hear me okay? Okay. Testing out a new mic today, so you may hear some different kinds of sounds, but hopefully uh, it's, you hear me loud and clear. I remember feeling a little nervous and a little bit excited as I prepared to meet Beamy, my wife's parents, for the very first time. Uh, we had been dating for a little while, but, you know, we went to college at Pacific Union College, the best place to go to college in Northern California. I got one amen at least. And her parents lived in Maryland, still do, <clears throat> and so they didn't get a chance to come see us. We had been dating for a while, and I knew that Beamy and I had something special going on, so I wanted to make a, a good impression. I don't want to mess this thing up. This is going somewhere good, and, and so I want to make a good impression on her parents, do something special even for when I see them. And so a few days before uh, their visit, uh, I was telling Beamy about how I was a little nervous about making a good impression, wanted to do something special for them, and, and Beamy said, you know what you could do that would impress, especially my dad, and who I was most worried about making a good impression on? If you would do the mono greeting or the bless greeting, as it's often called, and if you're Filipino or if you are familiar with Filipino culture, you, you may know what the uh, bless greeting is. It is a way in, in which you um, perform this gesture as a sign of respect and appreciation towards your elders, and it kind of symbolizes you receiving a blessing from them. Uh, and all it is is you take their hand, and usually the older people, because you do it mostly to those who are like a couple generations above you, they're usually ready for it, and they have their hand kind of like this, and you take their hand, and you put it on your forehead like that. Pretty simple. So she said, you should do that. It would really impress my dad. It's like, okay. So I practiced on Beamy a little bit. Is this right? Yeah, that's right. And, and so the day came when they arrived, and we were going to meet, and um, you know, since he's not two generations above me and I'm not Filipino, I don't think my father-in-law was expecting that this was the kind of greeting I was going to uh, try and give him. So when I shook his hand, I started to pull his hand toward my forehead, and I think he probably thought I was into really firm and violent handshakes. <laughs> so he pulled back really hard, and, and I kind of lunged forward. Then I pulled back even harder to try to get his hand up to my forehead, and he pulled me back, and we were going back and forth, all off balance. Finally, I just like put my head down and <laughs> find his, his hand and put it to my head, and, and he finally figures out you know, what I'm trying to do. And even though it went all super awkward and not smooth at all, when he realized what I was trying to do, it meant a lot to him. He said, I appreciate that you were trying to do that special greeting and, and show your respect. And we had a good laugh about it, which helped break the ice some. You know, when you have special people, you want to give them a special greeting, right? Today we begin a new series in the book of Philippians, a letter, more precisely, that Paul writes to the believers in Philippi. He writes it from inside prison walls. And he begins that letter with a very special greeting because he wants to convey to the believers in Philippi, I mean, you can just sense it as you start to read his introductory words, how much they mean to him, how special they are to him. But of course, in typical Paul fashion, he is also wanting to convey some pretty important theological teachings with his opening remarks as well. Suffice to say, Paul's introductory words in this letter represent far more than just a simple 
salutation. It's a special greeting that conveys a whole lot of meaning and significance and important teachings to us. So we would be wise as we begin our study on this letter to not just gloss over these opening remarks, but to give them special attention and take their teachings to heart. So we start first with the first few verses there in Philippians chapter 1. We don't have uh, slides today, so if you have your Bible in whatever format, pull it out to Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, on the surface, this may look like just a typical, ordinary greeting. And and it kind of did follow uh, some of the things that were typical in a a letter. In fact, the customary uh, way in which you were to start a letter back in the first century went something like name of the author to name of recipient, and then you would have a greeting. We even have an example of this uh, in Scripture. In Acts chapter 15, verse 23, you may remember the Jerusalem church leaders were writing a letter to the Gentile believers, and it says this, when with them they sent the following letter, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. So very, very typical, name to name, and then greeting. Paul follows this pattern, but he gives it a special twist. Rather than just say karin in the Greek, which means greetings, he inserts charis, which means grace. And he adds the Jewish salutation for peace, reminding them that of some of the most precious gifts that are theirs in Christ Jesus. But then he tweaks something else that makes his greeting even more special. In the first verse, Paul does not simply mention him and Timothy's name. He adds that they are servants of Christ. And that word in the original language for servants is not implying hired household help. That is the term commonly used in ancient times for slave. In the Greco-Roman context of Paul and the Philippian readers, that term would have had unmistakable overtones of humility and submission. In addition, it's interesting that Paul does not mention his own title as an apostle. Remember how the leaders in Jerusalem did that as they wrote to the Gentile believers, right? They said elders and deacons writing to you out there. And of course, we know that Paul does mention his title as an apostle in some of his other letters. But here in Philippians, however, the only position that Paul claims for himself and Timothy is the office of slave of Jesus Christ. The honored title of apostle is missing. Moreover, Paul makes certain to remind his readers of their special status. They are all saints, he says, holy people in Christ Jesus. Maybe what Paul is wanting the believers in Philippi and you and I to realize today as we pay close attention to this special greeting is the prominence humility should have in the body of Christ. Humility, of course, will be a major theme later in this letter, but he wastes no time in introducing its importance here. And though we will most certainly talk about humility in more depth later on in our series, I think Paul is wanting us to at least pause and maybe make one application when it comes to humility in the church. And that is this. 
If we want humility to be present in the body of Christ, then we must lead by example. Humility starts with me. It starts with you, living that out, modeling it in our words and actions with each other. That's what Paul does here from the very beginning, setting an example of humility to his readers. I was trying to think of a good illustration for this, and and I couldn't just help but think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And of course, Paul is going to use the incarnation of Jesus in the very next chapter to illustrate this is the kind of humble mindset you are to have with each other. The God in heaven who didn't use his his divinity for his own advantage, but for yours. And, And that's a wonderful, that's the ultimate example to use. But I couldn't help but think of another moment in Jesus's life and ministry where he modeled humility in a very profound and extravagant way, when he had that encounter with the woman at the well. You remember what he does, very, the very first thing that he does when he meets her. Does he, does he tell her everything that he knows about her? Does he tell her that, that he, uh, all that he's got to offer? Does he tell her that he is the I am? No, not yet. The very first thing he does is he sits there on that well with nothing to draw water with, which back then would have been unheard of. They just traveled miles. He, of course, would have brought something to draw water with. But he sent the disciples into town. He sat there on the well with nothing to draw water with on purpose so that when she comes, he can say, will you give me a drink? Such a humble act by Jesus. The one who can give living water sits himself at the well, purposely without anything to draw with, so that he could ask her for a drink. And I know he's breaking down cultural and racial barriers that existed between Jews and Samaritans and men and women during that time. But don't you think he's also trying to show her from the very start, you have something valuable to offer me. Genuine humility is genuinely interested in valuing what others can bring to the table. I like the way one of my favorite authors says it in her book, Desire of Ages, when she talks about the humble kindness Jesus does here. She said, The hatred between Jews and Samaritans prevented the woman from offering a kindness to Jesus, but the Savior was seeking to find the key to this heart. And with the tact born of divine love, He asked, not offered a favor. The offer of a kindness might have been rejected, but trust awakens trust. The king of heaven came to this outcast soul, asking a service at her hands. He who made the ocean, who controls the waters of the great deep, who opened the springs and channels of the earth, rested from his weariness at Jacob's well and was dependent upon a stranger's kindness, even for the gift of a drink of water. Genuine humility is genuinely interested in what others can bring to the table. And maybe that's one of the things we need to keep in mind the most as we seek to lead by example humility in the body of Christ, valuing what others bring to the table. So Paul's introductory words remind us, no doubt, of the importance of humility, that it starts with us. But then as we keep reading his introductory words, we see he also reminds us of the importance of praying for others. Maybe more specifically, the way in which we are to pray for each other. In verse 3, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, I've got to be honest with you. When I read that, my first reaction was, come on, Paul, are you serious? Come on, man, you have got to be fibbing a little bit here. Every time you remember them, you are thankful. In all your prayers for all of them, you are always praying with joy. Are you, are you being truthful on that? Now, I know the Philippian church were a special bunch to you. They were the first church you founded in Europe. I know they gave you lots of support, especially financial support. I know you got incredible hospitality from Lydia and, and that they sent Epaphroditus to ministry to you while you were in prison. I know they are a special group but they weren't perfect. We know that part of the reason you talk so much about unity and humility in this letter is because they have been struggling with division. We will read right in a few chapters about the quarrel between Euodia and Syntyche, which was so bad that it apparently infected the entire church, and, and there was so much arguing and complaining that it became like a plague to them, and, and it tarnished their witness to the community. How can you say you always pray for them with thanksgiving and joy? Are you being for real here, or are you just talking in hyperbole? And if you're being for real, how in the world do you do that? <laughs> well, I am inclined, family, to believe that Paul is for real, and also inclined to think that he is setting an example for us to follow as we pray for others. So how in the world do we do that? Always pray with thankfulness and joy for everyone. Well, I think he gives us some insight as to how in the world this is possible. He says, number one, because you are my partners in the gospel. How could he not be thankful and overjoyed for them? Because even though they aren't perfect all the time, and neither is he, they are working alongside him to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. They are committed to that above everything else. Some of the fondest memories I had when I used to attend uh, Pacific Union College, again, the best place to go to college ever, was playing on the basketball team. And, and some of you who have you know, are into competitive sports and have played on different teams, know that there is this, this special camaraderie and bond that you have with teammates that you, you play uh, sports with. And uh, that certainly happened in my time uh, at PUC. Uh, even though I didn't always get along with my teammates, maybe we had different personalities, when it was game time, I was always thankful and overjoyed to be on the team with them. And we, we lost a lot of games together, and, and maybe that was something we really bonded over. We lost most games by a lot of points. We were not very good. But man, I was always thankful to have them by my side. And there was one particular teammate who was a good friend, I would say, but I think one of his love languages is to be annoying. Um, he, he would do practical jokes all the time, sometimes in the middle of practice, 
Uh, sometimes when the coach was talking, it was totally inappropriate in the middle of the night when you're sleeping in your dorm room. Or sometimes he would just wrestle you in the dorm lobby where you had important papers and books in your hand. I mean, he would drive you nuts sometimes. But this friend of mine who would get under my skin was also six foot 11 inches tall. And he was pretty good with a basketball. And I got to tell you, every time I thought of him, especially when we were playing another team that had a lot of other big guys on their team, I was so thankful and so joyful that he was on my team because he could shut down their, the other team's big man. He would give me so many open three-pointers because I could dump the ball down to him in the post. He'd draw the defense that would collapse on him, kick it out to me, I'd be wide open. I was so thankful and joyful, even though we didn't always get along because I got to partner with him on the basketball court. And you know, family, all of us here, we aren't just teammates on a sports team that plays meaningless games that loses all the time. We are partners in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. We are on team gospel together. What we do here is the most important work there is. Think about the kind of thanksgiving and joy that should just flow in our prayers for each other just because of that, because we all bring the best of what we have to offer to the table, and we all work together to share the good news of Jesus. No wonder Paul could say, every time I think of you, it's with thanksgiving and joy, because you are my partners in the gospel ministry. And in case that isn't enough to influence the tone of your prayers for each other, here's a few others that Paul throws in there. We don't have time. This is the problem with preaching from Paul's letters. There are too many things to talk about. But just quickly, he says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Paul can't help but be joyful always for them because of the progressive transformation he knows God is doing in their lives. The fact that all of you are here today in this church means that God is doing something awesome in your life. And that alone is cause for gratitude and, and joy. How can he not pray for thanksgiving for his brothers and sisters in Christ, remembering that the God is doing a good work in them and will bring it to completion? And if that's not enough to influence the tone of your prayers for others, Paul adds more. It is right for me to feel this way about you, he said, since I have you in my heart, whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the challenges we find ourselves in, we all are operating in God's grace. The fact that we all share in God's grace together definitely is cause to be joyful and thankful every time we pray for each other. Paul's introduction here reminds us of the importance of humility and that we are always to pray for one another with thanksgiving and joy. And I think it is possible. And then he gives us, I think, one more thing to focus on, at least one more, as we look at his introductory words. And it's not just how to pray for each other, but what to pray for. What should be our focus and our mission? It was read by our worship team uh, this morning. And this is my prayer, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
Paul prays for their love to abound more and more and that they would become more knowledgeable, that they would become experts in how to love each other. And it's interesting. He says, I want you to do this because I want you to be able to discern what is best. Now, Paul probably has in mind here the false teaching to which he refers to in, in chapter 3 all the way up to chapter 4, verse 1, where he warns the Philippians of problems that have plagued probably more so, but could be a threat to this, this church as well, more so his other churches of, of false teachers, false prophets. And he's hoping that they won't be led astray, but they would keep devotion to the gospel so that they will be pure and blameless when they stand before Christ. They won't be led astray. And it is so fascinating to me that the way in which Paul says you're not going to be led astray is by learning to love each other better. You know, discerning is something that us Seventh-day Adventist Christians really take seriously. It is part of our DNA, right? We, we have spent many, many careful years uh, studying thoroughly through the prophecies in the Bible so that we will not be led astray, but keep devoted to the gospel, especially as we wait for the soon coming of Jesus. We have taken very seriously the truths in God's word and do our best to discern how God would have us apply and live out those truths in our lives. We are a church that genuinely desires to answer God's call to discern what is best. Which means we need to be a church that prays over and over for our love to abound more and more. That we would become experts on how to love people. For Paul seems to say that the best way to discern what is best is to learn how to be the best at loving each other. Isn't that cool? You know, when we take these... Uh, beautiful decorations. I'm sad that they're going to go tomorrow, but when we, when we take them all down, you know what we usually have up here? Our two banners that say, loving God and loving people. And you know those banners that are going to go back up this week? We don't have them up here because it makes for a nice slogan. No, we have those up here because Jesus said, all, all of the law and writings of the prophets hang on those two commandments, loving God and loving people. We have those banners up here because that is the foundation for everything we do as followers of Christ. And they are up there because doing that helps us to discern what is best. Family, we are at our wisest when our love for each other is at its highest. If you don't remember anything else from the sermon today, remember that sentence. It's my favorite thing that, that God shared with me this week in study. We are at our wisest when our love for each other is at its highest. As you can see, this is no simple salutation from Paul. It is a very, very special greeting, one that I hope you choose to take careful notice of and take its teachings to heart. For our benediction today, would you bow your heads? I just want to pray those few verses, 9 to 11, as we close today. Lord, this is our prayer, that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that we may be able to discern what is best 
and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen.